today on Ag News Daily. And most of the world, I think, has kind of gotten used to these low prices and their ability to buy product on a just-in-time basis. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I am flying solo for today's Thursday episode of the Ag News Daily Podcast. Mike has gotten stuck on a train in Chicago as he's heading back from taping this week in agribusiness, as he always does every Friday. And I have volunteered to host alone. So Mike will have to owe me one for hosting sometime in the future. But uh, it's been a somewhat sunny day here in central Iowa. Had a little rain this morning, which delayed some plantings in our neck of the woods. But I think farmers are maybe starting to get back out there this afternoon as things start to dry up and dry out. But since we're talking since we're on the topic of talking planting, that's a mouthful to say, if you guys are out in the field and have pictures or videos or just even an update on how your spring planting is shaping up for the year, I know we're still pretty early on in the game here. We'd love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out to us on social media at Ag News Daily on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Or you can always email us directly. My email is delaney at agnewsdaily.com. And you can send us your updates as you are chugging along. Even better yet, if you farm somewhere somewhat close to us in the state of Iowa, I would love to come out and ride in the planter with you. And maybe do an interview with you. Or we can do some stuff on social media. But uh, I think farmers love watching other farmers farm and use equipment and I will often catch my boyfriend watching farming videos so I know that you guys do it. I think maybe more men do it than women. I don't know a lot of my friends that sit around and watch farming videos but I'm sure there are some that do it as well but uh, would love to get out there and get in some tractors with people this spring so hit us up on social media or feel free to send me an email directly if you are interested in allowing us to invade your space we'll wear masks if you want us to if you have concern about COVID-19 but uh let's let's get out there let's still do some stuff let's uh share what we're doing for spring planting Hey guys, as you know, when I'm not hosting Ag News Daily, I'm helping out with the Iowa Farm Bureau's Spokesman Speaks podcast. If you're from Iowa, you're probably familiar with the Spokesman newspaper. It has the largest readership of any ag newspaper here in the state of Iowa. The Spokesman Speaks podcast is essentially an extension of that newspaper, reaching farmers and ag professionals like you on the go with the stories that matter most. In this week's podcast episode, We have an update from Iowa Farm Bureau President Craig Hill on Ag's response to COVID-19. We talk with the Iowa Food Bank Association about the most pressing needs for food banks right now. We hear about some new consensus conservation management recommendations being made by a group of scientists and technical specialists. And we chat with an expert about some farm safety tips that are specific to COVID-19. That's a lot of information jam-packed into one episode. You can find it and subscribe to the Spokesman Speaks podcast in your favorite podcast app or go to iowafarmbureau.com slash podcast. 
But to look at some news for today, a couple of big headlines jumping out at me. I want to start out first here with a quick update and a shout out to one of our frequent listeners and has been a frequent guest on the podcast. That's Dr. Jim Smith, who works with Kent Nutrition Group. He is a pork guy. He is a pig guy. He knows his pork industry facts. And he shared this on Facebook yesterday. I thought it was super interesting. And did some number crunching that I originally shared I was going to do, but if he did it, I'm going to trust his numbers because I'm not always the best at math. But anyways, he went ahead and put together a quick analysis, did some quick number crunching on how much U.S. pork is shut down because of the facilities that are either idled and or shut down for the foreseeable future. So right now we've got about 15 to 20 percent of the nation's U.S. pork packing capacity is shut down. They're closed. They're not working. He said that equates to about 75,000 pigs per day. This doesn't include any of the plants that are operating at less than capacity. So just those facilities alone that have shut down completely. So we're talking the JBS facility in Worthington, Minnesota. We're talking the Smithfield facility in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. The Waterloo Tyson facility here in my neck of the woods. And a few of the smaller guys that are shut down. So 75,000 pigs are coming out of those facilities, accounting for about 15 to 20% of the U.S. pork supply in the United States. That is 75,000 pigs per day, which equate to about 2.4 million one-pound packages of bacon, 700,000 pounds of spare ribs, 3.77 million pounds of pork chops, 3.68 million pounds of ham, and about 4.38 million pounds of other pork products. And again, this is what we are doing to back up the system literally every day that these plants are shut down. So he says we're approaching crisis situation for U.S. agriculture. I would certainly agree. That's a lot of pork to be held up in the system. And we also shared an interesting article on our Facebook page where we also shared Jim's numbers from the Des Moines Register looking at both U.S. beef and U.S. pork producers that are facing a lot of struggles as they are, you know, have to decide what are they going to do? Are they going to back off on feed? Are they going to butcher them locally? Are they going to have to euthanize those pigs? Where are you going to take those pigs? So this is becoming a serious supply chain issue. I hate to say it, but I think at some point it will become a food security issue where we don't see those people in the grocery stores being able to access pork. I was reading an interesting article on Bloomberg here. I've got it actually printed out. And it was looking at these meat shortages that we have. And so a senior account executive from Archer Financial Services said that there's just nowhere to put the pork right now. The big box stores will get their needs met first, and many other stores will not. So he said meat shortages will be occurring about two weeks from now in retail outlets is his timeline here for things. So what does that mean for the U.S. pork industry? Well, that's yet to be seen, but definitely a drastic shift in what our consumers are going to be eating or have access to at the grocery store. Thankfully, I have stocked up on my bacon and my sausage, my ground sausage already. 
uh, because I kind of foresaw this happening and I really cannot live without those two pork products. Um, so now might be a good time if you are a if you are a big bacon eater to go out and stock up on those things because not only will they probably not be able to be found in your grocery store, if they are available, you can bet that those prices are going to be quite a bit higher than maybe the norm for this time of year. So we are going to continue to watch that story. We've got a few contacts in the pork industry we are working right now to schedule some interviews with to talk about firsthand as a big pork producer or as an independent pork producer, what are you doing and how are you reacting to all of this? So stay tuned. Those interviews will be coming. Or if you are a pork producer and have comments that you'd like to volunteer for an interview, again, reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, or email me. We would be happy to have you on as a guest. In other pork-related news, Iowa State University just put out a new study looking at what the economic impact of an outbreak of African swine fever could be on U.S. agriculture. They estimated that it could be as much as $50 billion over the next 10 years. As we've talked about on the podcast, this is still something that is running rampant in China and southeastern Asia, even though the news headlines really haven't been paying very much attention to it as of late. There's still, of course, the very real threat that it could come to the United States shore. And so we are seeing folks in the pork industry continue to figure out ways to manage that. But this new study said $50 billion over the next 10 years which is a crazy amount of money that we could see, not only because they said of a reduction in pork, but also because they're estimating at least 140,000 jobs would be lost as a result of people in the pork industry downsizing operations or downsizing the pork industry in general. So that's something that uh, we're going to have to continue to keep an eye on because it's not going away anytime soon, would be my guess. But in other protein-related news, we saw USDA release their export sales numbers today. And they showed that China has purchased another 1,400 metric tons of U.S. beef, as well as 272,000 tons of U.S. soybeans. So they are continuing to make those purchases that they have promised they were going to make as part of the Phase 1 trade agreement and the new sale that was just announced today made in the week period beginning April 10th comes on top of a 1,500 ton purchase that was made earlier this month. So this is, to put in perspective, the highest weekly purchase that China has ever made for U.S. beef. And of course, we know that the airways or the trading route, if you will, has been open to U.S. beef now that we have some of those trade restrictions lifted by the Chinese government. So it's very exciting to see that they are buying U.S. beef. And this is really the beef demand by China has been largely driven by the fact that we are starting to come short on running or on having a ample supply of U.S. pork products. I think I mentioned this yesterday on the podcast, but I wanted to share it again. I was talking to some folks and in cold storage, we have only about a week's worth of pork that would feed the nation right now. So we don't have a lot of it. 
The system is going to be backed up here within the next two to three weeks. And China is buying beef because they know that we don't have the pork. They don't really have the pork. And so it's just creating a full circle system problem, unfortunately. But another story we will continue to keep our eyes on. As is this story that I have been personally passionate about following, and that is the Paycheck Protection Program. Today, we are expecting the House to vote and clear legislation that will add $321 billion to the Paycheck Protection Program. This legislation, in addition to that $321 billion, which farmers are eligible to receive, this legislation will also make farms eligible for $10,000 advances through the Small Business Administration's Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program. These advances, folks, is are going to be monies that do not have to be repaid. I will repeat that again. This $10,000 advance all farms are eligible for through the Small Small Business Administration's Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program. That $10,000 advance that you could receive if you get in touch with your banker and they help you fill out the correct paperwork, these are advances that don't have to be repaid. So this isn't a loan. This isn't something that you're going to be asked to pay back here in a few years because I've talked to some farmers that have said, eh, it's not worth it because the Paycheck Protection Program is a loan and we'll have to pay it back at some point. We've already got operating notes, so why do we want to add to that? No, this advance is an advance. It's just that it's money you do not have to pay back. So why would you not take advantage of that? I mean, we all know that farmers are struggling. Uh, markets have not been favorable. Uh, however, they were today. Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast heard on the Global Ag Network. If a picket fence stand of corn is the first step to a bountiful harvest, then a smooth idle is the foundation of a well-running engine. Idle quality is an indicator of engine health and needs to be recognized. Most idle quality issues are rooted in fuel delivery problems, but also ignition and internal components such as the valves can be to blame. A quick test is to raise the engine speed above idle and listen to the exhaust and feel the pulses. If it smooths out, then examine the fuel delivery, the carburetor or injectors on a gasoline or diesel engine. If the rough running is not diminished or eliminated with a higher engine speed, the problem is ignition or internal. Agriculture runs on machinery, profits on reliability. Please visit FarmMachineryDigest.com for more helpful hints and technical articles. So that is the end of my news for today. And since I mentioned markets, I'm going to jump right into things here and take a look across the screen. And grains were positive today. Starting off here in the May corn contract ended up a penny and three quarters to close at 319 and a quarter. The July contract closed a penny and a quarter higher to end at 326 even. In the soybean pits, they had some stronger trading earlier in the session but they still finished in the green with the May closing at four and a half cents to end at 390 
8.39 and a quarter, excuse me, the July ending up four and a quarter cent to close at 8.46 and three quarters. Wheat continued the strength today with the May contract closing at five, closing four cents higher to close at 5.47 even, the July up a penny to close at 5.44 and three quarters. Hopping over to take a look at the livestock markets, we saw mixed trade today across the screen. The April live cattle contract closed down $3 to end at $85.95. The June shed a dollar to close at $82.92 and half. In the feeder cattle complex, strength continued with the April contract adding $0.95 cents to close at $119.42 and a half. The May up 60 to close at $117.27 and a half. In the lean hog pits, pretty big moves on the day with the May contract adding $3.75 to close at $50.97. The June added $3.72.5 to close at $51.62.5. Hopping over to look at the dairy markets, April Class 3 milk futures shed $0.22 cents today to close at $13.19. May added $0.27 cents to close at $10.79. Now, for today's interview, we are turning it over to a conversation that Mike and I had earlier this week with Jeff Van Pevenage, who is the CEO and president of Columbia Grain, talking pulse crops and how COVID-19 has been changing that industry. As we continue to chat about the way COVID-19 is changing, not only our agricultural industry, but also consumer tastes and preferences, today we're talking with Jeff Van Pevenage, the CEO and president of Columbia Grain. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to uh, talk about what's going on in agriculture in our uh, space right now. Absolutely, because your space is one that unfortunately we don't cover maybe as much as we should on the podcast, but walk us through the company Columbia Grain. What are you doing? How do you fit in the ag space? Columbia Grain is a 100% wholly owned subsidiary of Marabini. We started 42 years ago in, uh, in July and originally were created as an exporter primarily for wheat into the Asian market, but over time we've grown to include corn, soybeans. We have kind of acquired other companies throughout the Washington, Idaho, Montana, North Dakota region to form a supply chain type of company via our Pacificor joint venture here in Portland where we load bulk vessel and exports. And we also have created the largest supply line for peas, lentils, dry beans in the United States, primarily through you know, building out new assets in the Montana, North Dakota region and bolted them onto our Washington pea and lentil processing facilities that were already in existence. So that's kind of the main uh, core of our business is exporting grains towards the Asian market. We do supply U.S flour mills as well from the Montana region and uh, North Dakota spring wheat region. And we've really grown our pea and lentil business to a worldwide exporter as well as a domestic supplier. 
Now, Jeff, we talk a lot on this podcast about wheat and soybeans, so I want to dive into the pea and lentil side of the business because that's something I'm sure our listeners, unless they're growing them or in the industry, probably aren't all that familiar with. Can you bring us up to speed before COVID-19 hit? What was happening in the pea and lentil sector, the pulse crops across the country? Were you seeing more acreage, declining acreage? What was happening? What was the state of that sector? Well, that sector has really grown since 2005. Prior to that, the United States primarily grew them in the Washington, Idaho area. But, you know, now over time, Montana has become the largest producer of peas, lentils, and uh, North Dakota has been the second largest. Kind of looking at prices have really been sort of uh, stale for the last two to three years as the Russians have grown a lot more and uh, really came in and started to compete as well as the Indian, the largest buyer in the world for peas and lentils, has become a little bit more sustainable uh, with his own production. So they've actually had a lot of import restrictions there. So you've seen this market really, uh, really kind of become saturated worldwide and prices were slow. So as we were kind of pulling our growers and looking at what they wanted to do, you know, certainly chickpea acreage was going to get decimated this year because those markets have uh, come down substantially and have been more than oversupplied for the last two years. You've seen lentil prices kind of grinded out. And so a lot of producers in, the, in that field kind of decided they were going to back off on acres as well. Here comes COVID-19. Um, lentil prices have gone up uh, to the tune of about 100 to 125 dollars a metric ton worldwide kind of what you had i I was amazed uh seven eight weeks ago as this really got started you could go to a grocery store and you'd go to the the bean section and because i'm a i'm a bean lentil guy i kind of always go by and look to see what's going on with inventory well they were cleaned out so the next weekend i went and decided to tour through about eight different large grocery stores in the Portland metro area. And you know what? They were all sold out. And just like that, all of a sudden you started to have a lot of the dry packagers in the United States calling us asking, could we we ship a load tomorrow? Could we get a truck in there the next day? Um, And it's just kind of continued for the last four to five weeks. About two weeks after the U S domestic guys started calling, so did, uh, so did the world buyers, Italy, Spain, Greece, uh, South America, and most of the world, I think, has kind of gotten used to these low prices and their ability to buy product on a just-in-time basis and probably have two or three companies kind of you know, falling on them to make the sale. So it's been easy to buy and it's been cheap for them to buy. Well, we started to get into some transportation issues because of China being locked down and their lack of container movement around the world, these products tend to move in containers more so. And, uh, and all of a sudden, buyers could not buy them, couldn't get them when they needed them. Everybody's capacity was getting booked up um, for the processing of these products. And so the market just kind of started pushing itself. All of a sudden, in the last, you know, we have not, we've seeded in the Washington, Idaho area where they do a lot of chickpeas or green peas. So those decisions can't be changed. But in the Montana, North Dakota region, they're just now starting to get to thinking about seeding. And they're starting to change their mind, say, boy, let's get some more lentils in the ground. 
uh, probably going to see some more peas go on the ground. Probably not going to see more chickpeas uh, than expected go on the ground because those prices and, the, and there's a lot of inventory still left out there. On the dry bean side of things, one of the problems that we faced with this year's seeding is that last year's crop sustained a lot of water damage at harvest time. So the seed stock actually was difficult to find uh, the good quality seed to be able to increase acres. So the acreage isn't going to increase as much as we thought and the supplies will likely remain uh, relatively tight for another year in that area. Jeff, you mentioned a lot of things that I think are really interesting and I want to dive a little deeper into, but for frame of reference, you said $125 per metric ton. What should crops usually cost at this time of year? What's the norm for how prices get determined in the pulse industry? Well, and, and that's just an increase in price, okay? Okay. Over the course of the last month to month and a half, um, you know, normally people just look at it from a supply and demand situation. How, you know, how much are we going to carry out from this year's crop into next year's crop? And then they, you know, will start making decisions about what do they want to buy for next year for September, October forward. And some of the bigger food companies might take a view at it for a full year and say, I want to cover my whole, all my, uh, maybe I want to cover all my green pea needs for the next year to a canning facility. Uh, and they'll look at how prices are for next year's crop versus what people are willing to sell them this year and, and make a decision from there. Same time, you know, we'll be out dealing with our growers and say, you know, this is the kind of level that we think the buyers want to buy at. Are you willing to contract any of your production for next year's crop, you know, or, or this summer's crop um, at those levels? And it just kind of becomes a back and forth negotiation between the packagers and the canners and, and us and the farmers. And given that, that kind of helps the farmer make a decision as to what is the best crop to buy or to, to plant, I'm sorry. Absolutely, Jeff. And those price signals are coming through loud and clear, it sounds like, when you're talking about price increases the way you've seen. The question I would ask then is, how much of this do you think will be short term should this coronavirus thing, the, the home restrictions and so forth, come to an end? Do you think there's going to be a bit of an oversupply in some of these markets then? I don't think we'll get to an oversupply. I think the world stocks were finally getting tight. And some of the, the deciding factors in this, as I said, if you, if you look at, take green lentils, for instance, the Black Sea region has really increased their green lentil production over the course of the last two to three years. And that product has been flowing into Iran, into the UAE, uh, Turkey, even a little bit into the European market. And so that competes a lot with the U.S. and Canadian crops and uh, production, takes away our market. And that's what's really caused our market uh, to kind of stay st uh, very stale and sideways for the last couple of years and at the lower end of the market over the course of the last 10 years. Well, they've the, the Black Sea region has already kind of made their decision and seeded as well. And, and they indications we're getting out of there is that the acreage is down. So given the fact that we still have a chance to increase acres, you might say that the world stocks will, will kind of be at a similar level to where it's been the last year or two. But I do believe that people have kind of made a decision that they need to keep more on hand 
in case other things like this happen. So probably for the next year or two, you'll see a stock building where people's warehouses will be fuller with these types of products. And so they're not caught shorthanded at a time like they are today. Absolutely. I mean, this has just been so interesting, nonetheless, to say that we're watching consumer demand literally transform and, and potentially take on a new new form here uh, after COVID-19. But Jeff, thank you so much for filling us in. This has been fascinating stuff to learn more about the Pulse and Bean Industries. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, it's definitely kind of a, a little bit of a hidden industry in the United States. A lot of people are looking more at the corn, wheat, soybeans, and the big movements of shuttle trains. But I find this to be a, a fascinating industry to watch how it moves from the farm into you know, bags, 100-pound bags. And I've watched them and found them all over the world uh, coming right out of some of our facilities in Montana and North Dakota. So it's fascinating to watch how food travels. Absolutely, that it is. Well, Jeff, thank you again so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Well, again, a big thank you there to Jeff. Really interesting stuff. I love talking about parts of U.S. agriculture that are maybe a little less traditional to at least some of us here in the Midwest. But absolutely a staple part of agriculture when you look at the West Coast. Just interesting, interesting stuff. But we're going to continue having conversations with producers, businesses, and others affected by COVID-19 and other things happening in the news cycle. Although as of late, of course, it feels like COVID-19 is really all that's going on. But if you want to stay in tune with us and all of the things that we're sharing on our social media, follow us at Ag News Daily on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or catch up on any of the past episodes you may have missed by heading to agnewsdaily.com. With that, we hope to all see you back here tomorrow for a special Friday edition. Mm-hmm.